This is Dom Bettinelli, the CEO of SQPN, with a brief but very important message. For more than a decade, SQPN has produced the Catholic faith and pop culture podcast that you love. We're a nonprofit organization, so it's only your generosity that lets us carry out our mission. We haven't run a fundraiser in two years, and that's why we need to ask for your help right now. Please make a pledge of whatever amount you can afford to help us continue providing your favorite podcasts, as well as exciting new ones we have planned. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. Thank you for your generosity. May we hear from you today? You're listening to Episode 17 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries both natural and supernatural from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. And in this week, this episode, we're talking about whether we're living in a computer simulation or any kind of other simulation and whether it would matter if we are. Uh, this, this is a good one. This is, you know, are you, know, are you in the Matrix? Get ready to take your blue pill or the red pill. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me as always is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So before we get going, I want to remind folks to remember to like Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. Uh, make sure to uh, like the episodes that we post on Facebook, retweet them on Twitter, leave us comments, subscribe to the podcast if you don't already in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in your favorite podcast app. Or on YouTube, where if you uh, listen to the episode on YouTube, make sure to hit the bell to get notifications of whenever we post a new episode. And above all, this is all in service to sharing the podcast so that other people can discover it. Uh, People have been loving this uh, podcast. Uh, Actually, my kids this morning said, Daddy, are you recording any new episodes soon? I'm like, yes, yes, we're doing that today. We're recording new episodes today. And then they're like, yay! My kids love to listen <laughs> to this ep- podcast. Uh, and I don't think it's awesome. just because they hear my voice. They love the content. So uh, please help us grow the community uh, and reach more listeners. Uh, pe- pe- people of all ages are loving it. We'll have more in feedback about uh, how people are responding. So uh, thank you, everyone, for, for listening. So um, we should uh, get into the episode. Uh, but first, I wanted to kind of... Uh, uh, I forgot. I almost forgot. Uh, to kind of reiterate a message that you heard at the beginning of the episode, which is, uh, our giving campaign is ongoing. And yeah, uh, if you know the, this show is made possible, if you are enjoying the show, uh, and I I would assume you are since you're listening, it's made possible by the Starquest Production Network, which we're a part of, and through this uh, through SQPN, the supporters, longtime supporters, we've had supporters going back ten years supporting sqpn through their donations and uh in other uh their prayers in other ways but especially the donations which help pay our bills and keep us going uh and you can do that too you can join them by going to sqpn.com slash give and becoming a patron of the show uh and if you if you are become a patron at certain different giving levels uh we have some very nice gifts that we are uh you know willing to offer you including some gifts uh, related to this show, some yeah. related to some of the topics we've talked about in previous episodes, some of the books that we've brought up uh, that that Jimmy has mentioned as resources, uh, we will we will send send uh, copies of those to you, um, depending on your giving level, if you if you choose those, and uh, you can you can see those for yourselves. So, uh, 
Go to sqpn.com slash give, become one of our regular monthly Patreon supporters. And it's important that you do that because um, Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is one of a number of new podcasts that StarQuest launched. And we did so stepping out, you know, as a leap of faith, uh, trusting that the donors would be there to underwrite it, because with these new podcasts, they have new costs. I am not receiving any compensation for this, but there are uh, costs uh, that are, you know, associated with producing the show and getting it uploaded and making it available in so many places and so forth. And we, you know, stepped out in faith, assuming that the donors would be there to support the show. And while uh, some people have responded, we're not where we need to be at this point in our giving campaign. So we really do need to hear from you. This is a great time, uh, December, to go ahead and make a donation. It can even help you with your taxes for next year. It also is the season of giving as we come to the anniversary of God's greatest gift to us, his own son. And so it uh, puts people naturally in a giving mood. This is when most nonprofit organizations like StarQuest make most of their money during the year. So we really do need to hear from you. Please go to sqpn.com slash give, become one of our regular monthly Patreon supporters, and thank you so much for your generosity. So our topic today, as I said at the top, is uh, are we in a simulation and does it matter? So, Jimmy, can you explain what this what this, uh, you know, I've heard people talk about this before, but I'm sure this is news to some of our listeners. Yeah. So probably the the biggest example of this in pop culture is the Matrix movies. In the Matrix movies, Keanu Reeves discovers that even though he's been living uh, an ordinary life as a, a person in a modern society, that really he is he and everyone else he knows is plugged into an elaborate computer simulation. And so he's been living in a dream world uh, all of his life. And that's something that comes as a big surprise to him. But it's something that actually has been proposed in a serious way <clears throat> and that various philosophers and scientists are taking seriously today as something that may not just be science fiction. The basic argument, and so we move into the claims section now, mm -hmm. the basic argument uh, was made in 2003 by a philosopher named Nick Bostrom. And he said, OK, look, right now, today, we are producing computer simulations of various events. Uh, you know, we model weather, we model all kinds of different things, we model subatomic particle interactions. We use computers to simulate all kinds of different scenarios. Some of these scenarios involve our own ancestors. You know, we have games like, you know, build Western civilization games and things like that. And we're also experiencing a dramatic rise in the quality of computer technology and our simulations are becoming more and more sophisticated. And so he wondered, could we one day get to such a level of uh, technological sophistication that our scenarios would so closely mirror what we experience in real life that they would be, at least from within the scenario, indistinguishable from real life? Mm. In that case, we would be living in a simulation and not even be aware of it. We ourselves would be part of the simulation, just characters 
in the simulation and not even realize it. And so he said, okay, it looks like there would be sort of three possibilities. The first possibility is that the fraction of human level civilizations that reach a post-human stage, that's one capable of running high fidelity simulations about their ancestors, is very close to zero. In other words, that for some reason, this just doesn't happen. Either these societies wipe themselves out or the uh, or the uh, the computer technology stalls out before the simulations can get to this level or something. So the number of civilizations capable of doing this might be very close to zero. Or second possibility, the fraction of post-human civilizations that are interested in running ancestor simulations is very close to zero. So as they get on this scenario, they get up to a certain level and they're really not interested in running simulations about their ancestors the way we are. And then the third possibility, if if neither of the first is true, if there are lots of civilizations that can run uh, ancestor simulations in high fidelity, and if they're interested in doing so, then there would be a huge number of simulations compared to just one base reality that's not a simulation. And so on this third possibility, the fraction of all people with our kind of experiences who are living in a simulation would be almost one. It would be almost 100% chance that we're living in a simulation one of the many countless simulations running somewhere on a computer, as opposed to just being in that base reality that's not a simulation. Okay, so just to be clear, we're looking at, you know, to say in a a future compared to ours. So we're not yet at the stage uh, where we could create a simulation of our world that of such high fidelity that it's almost indistinguishable uh, from reality to the people, quote unquote, inside it, the intelligences inside it. So the AIs, the AIs. So but but if there if we posit that that sort of thing is is a possible future, then in that possible time frame, that possible future, they could they they could create such a thing as uh, these uh, these artificial intelligences and they might want to. And if they can, if they have the technical ability, if they have the desire, then the vast majority of people, intelligences, artificial and real, um, the the vast majority of those would be the artificial kind. Because correct, because yeah, because when because at least the way we run simulations, we don't we don't build a, a a simulation and run it just once. Yeah, you know, we model something lots of different times to see what happens, and consequently, uh, for every one simulated, uh, we we don't have just one version of a simulation. We've got lots of iterations of it, mm-hmm. and we would then be the artificial intelligences in in one of those the odds would be that we would be an artificial intelligence in one of the simulations as opposed to a non-artificial intelligence in the base reality okay. just by the luck of the draw okay so uh we can get into the you know to what all that means as we go through uh the you know the reason and faith perspectives uh mm-hmm. but uh, but uh, we can we sort of have a base to to start the discussion on by by yeah. starting here and so the question then becomes well what are the odds 
of <laughs> these three options being true, or which one of them is true, if any. And uh, Bostrom did not assign any probabilities to them, although I think more recently he said he thinks they're kind of equal probable that uh, no one option stands out among the others as being, oh, this is clearly the most probable. Other people have uh, have taken positions on what they think the probability is that we're living in a simulation. Elon Musk, the industrialist, is uh, is famous for having said he thinks the odds are billions to one that we are living in a simulation. So he thinks the odds are overwhelmingly large that we are living in a simulation. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astronomer, on the other hand, has said he thinks it's about 50-50 that we're living in a base reality or that we're living in a simulation. Mm. So those are kind of the the pro-simulation claims. The, the basic counterclaim then is, nope, we're just not living in a simulation. We're living in a base reality. Okay, that the uh, if we if we were to run a, a an advanced artificial intelligence simulation, um, it would never be so advanced that the the intelligences inside would 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 be indistinguishable from us. Well, there we're getting into arguments for why the counter for of the people who make the counterclaim. The basic right. counterclaim is just that we're not living in okay. a simulation. All right, we'll get into the yeah. So we'll get into the arguments. Okay, so um it. Uh, so what what do we um, what what are the what is the evidence what are the what's the the facts that we can draw from in order to examine these claims? Well, in terms of what we can all agree on, um, you know, the kind of what we know material, uh, we know that we do in fact live a good chunk of our lives in simulations. We call them dreams. Uh, we don't fully understand why dreams occur, but it's clear that they do. And we spend a lot of our time living in a simulation and not even realizing it, because unless mm. you're experiencing the phenomenon known as lucid dreaming, you're not a, typically aware of the fact that you're dreaming when it's happening. And it seems like everything around you is uh, is is real. And even though it behaves in a way different than waking life, it's something that you don't really question. Hmm. And and so uh, so we do know that that it is possible for us to be in a simulation and not even realize it because that happens to us every single night. We also know that we are currently making simulations of events in computers, and we know that some of those model human experiences. Uh, for example, there's the popular online game Minecraft, where people have a kind of simulated online life that they uh, that they live. Also, even without human involvement, uh, like playing a game, uh, we have other simulations of human experience. I, I remember watching a documentary, one of the bonus features on a DVD for one of the Lord of the Rings movies, and they were talking about how they used CGI, computer-generated imagery, to produce battle sequences of these large armies, um, you know, for the battle sequences in Lord of the Rings. And they had programmed each of the uh, soldiers that was depicted in the army with a certain kind of autonomous decision-making process, so really primitive AI. But they were programming them based on what was happening around them to make decisions about, like, do you advance and attack? Do you retreat? Things like that. And the um, the CGI artists were amused by the fact that in one huge battle sequence, they happened to notice 
that one of the soldiers was so surrounded and in such over, such such an overwhelmingly bad position with people around him, he just ran away <laughs> and left the battlefield. <laughs> and and uh, and so we we do know that uh, we use simulations to model mm. human experiences, and it it and we know we're rapidly increasing in our sophistication with regard to these simulations, even the ones in the Lord of the Rings, those would not have been possible 10 years before they made that movie. Yep. And, uh, and what they're doing so, now with, with it is, is so much even more advanced. I know than some movies like world war Z was uh-huh. an advancement on that. And that was even, you know, more uh, technically advanced in the uh, just what they had, the, when they had the zombie attacks, uh, these yeah. armies of zombies and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, and, and then even, um, stuff that we see in movies that are coming out today, I, I think most audiences don't realize how much of the movie is is yeah. completely AI and ge- computer generated without actual people involved in it at all. Yeah. And so we know that we use simulations of human experiences, including, you know, kind of ancestor like things like Lord of the Rings um, to both for entertainment purposes and we also use them, even though they don't get as much press, uh, we also use uh, things like that for research purposes. Mm-hmm. So all of those are basic things that we can agree upon, uh, whether or not you're pro or anti-simulation. Okay. So if we approach this, say, from the perspective of reason, so the uh, what does reason tell us about this likelihood of that we're living in a simulation? Well, because we have increasing sophistication in computer technology. Um, we can expect, and we've seen that happening over the last number of decades, we have every reason to think that that's going to continue into the future. The question is, will it continue unabated? Um, there's a famous law that people may have heard of called Moore's Law, which says that basically, there are different versions of it, but basically the computing power we have at our disposal doubles every 12 to 24 months. And Moore's Law has has worked for a number of decades, but it's showing signs that it may not continue in the future. In fact, some people would say it's already been broken, that um, computer technology is no longer moving forward at that rate, in part because we're coming to the limits of what you can do with silicon. Computer chips are made out of... Uh, silicon is one of the key atoms that's used in one of the key elements that's used in computer chips. And um, in order to make chips faster and faster, you need to use to have them operating on smaller and smaller scales, but you just can't get below a certain point with uh, with with atoms. And so we may hit a barrier that we can't move beyond. Now, there are hopes that we can move beyond uh uh, silicon-based computing to what's called quantum computing, which would take us down to computing at the level of subatomic particles. And thus, uh, we'd achieve a new smaller scale and new faster speeds of computation. And they're currently working on quantum computing, but it's not really there yet. It's certainly not commercially available. And so it, it, there's a question of just how far in the future Will this trend of increasing computer sophistication continue? And it's perfectly legitimate 
to argue, and some people do argue, that there's a limit to how big we can make computers, how fast we can make them, and consequently, uh, there are uh, there would be a barrier to creating the kind of realistic world ancestor simulation that the simulation hypothesis proposes, that it just wouldn't be feasible either technologically or economically for computers, for, for civilizations to make a large number of such simulations. And if they're not able to make a large number of such simulations, then the odds that we would be living in one would be very low. So uh, this is kind of embracing Bostrom's first option, that the the number of such civilizations capable of making this type of simulation is close to zero. And that's just based on, that argument's just based on um, computing power. But I also mentioned another one, another reason that uh, that might keep the number of such civilizations low, which is they might kill themselves off. This is uh, a proposal that we have already mentioned in our discussion of the Fermi paradox. Why don't we hear more aliens chattering in outer space? It may be that once you discover element 92, uranium, and some of the elements that follow it, like element 94, plutonium, that you start building atomic bombs and wiping yourself out, or you develop a plague and wipe yourself out, or something happens and you wipe yourself out. And that would also keep the number of civilizations capable of building robust ancestor simulations close to zero. And then, you know, there there are other issues such as... Um... If even if we have the computing power, would we have the software needed to program all of the trillions of variables? Just just look look right. in your surroundings right now and think of all the variables of everything surrounding you. Like just the computer screen in front of me has millions of pixels, and you have to model that screen somehow. Uh, I mean that the 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 complexity of such a simulation is is mind-boggling and and so even that so whether you have the hardware you might not have the software but even then there are things like um you know it it also posits this idea that do, you know and you kind of bring boston brings this up do we even need you know w- will we even need such simulations in the future right and and this gets to a second line of attack on the simulation hypothesis which is that any s- civilizations that are advanced enough to make this kind of simulation, they would be past the point of needing to make large numbers of them. If you can really model the world in such detail that um, you're going to get a simulation right, then you, with a high degree of confidence, then you don't need to run it a bazillion (laughs) times. Right. And so you just run it once and you know the answer to your problem. So you don't need it for research purposes. Also, do you need such high fidelity simulations for entertainment purposes? Can't you entertain yourself in other ways that don't require a, a simulated world of that degree of sophistication where you have billions of AIs living in it that are not aware of the fact that are that they're that they are in a simulation even though they're equal in intelligence to an ordinary human being? Uh, we can entertain ourselves by watching Lord of the Rings. We didn't need to make the simulations in that have actual human intelligence. <laughs> right. Even the one who had the smarts to run away didn't have actual human intelligence. So it's just questionable whether an, a sufficiently advanced civilization would have either research or entertainment needs 
for building a large number of robust simulations. Okay. So that would kind of uh, go for Bostrom's second of the three options, that even though there may be a lot of civilizations that have the technology to run these things, they just don't have an interest or a need in running lots of them. Okay. And if they don't run lots of them, then the odds that we're in one are correspondingly low. So are there, are there, is there other um, reason-based uh, evidence against um, the, 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 that we're living in a simulation? Yeah, um, the fact that we're conscious. Uh, this is something that is is very difficult to explain scientifically. Consciousness is a notoriously difficult problem to crack because it doesn't seem to arise from what we can tell from inanimate matter, and it doesn't seem to arise in computer programs, but we are clearly conscious uh, we have a first-person experience that um, is very hard to explain scientifically. In uh, scientific circles and philosophical circles, this is known as the hard problem of consciousness. And um, we really do not have a scientific theory at all of what consciousness is or how it arises or how it operates. You'll hear people say things like, well, it's, a, it's an emergent property that appears from certain kinds of physical interactions. But that's that's like saying gravity makes things fall down. It doesn't <laughs> it doesn't tell you why this happens. Right. It's just noting a correlation between these phenomena. And so um we just do not have a scientific theory of consciousness which will come back in the faith perspective as we'll talk about. But a lot of people even without a faith perspective have said the fact that we are conscious and that computer programs are not gives us reason to think that we are not living in a computer program. So, you know, we don't even know how our own brains, even if that's, if that's even the seat of our consciousness, where our consciousness resides, but we kind of speculate, you know, the, the popular speculation is somehow all that electricity running through our brain equals me at thinking, you know, a thinking person. Um, we don't even know how that works. So how could we, 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 how could we possibly consider that a, we could figure this out in a computer simula you know, simulation and AI make that conscious. We're not we're not even close to making a conscious AI. Is kind of the argument. right, and the argument is is not simply that we wouldn't know how to do this. Um, it's you the you could theoretically create an AI that has the same sophistication as a human being in in theory, so that you could ask it any question and it would produce a meaningful response, and if it produces responses that are as believable as the ones an ordinary human would produce, it's then said to have passed the Turing test after Alan Turing, the British mathematician who proposed this idea. And so you could theoretically come up with an AI that is as sophisticated a thinker as a human being, but it would still be a toaster. It right. wouldn't actually, it might talk like a human and say, I'm having a nice day but it wouldn't actually have the first-person experience of experiencing a nice day. It would just be manipulating the symbols, the words, I'm having a nice day, but wouldn't have any, under, any actual understanding in a conscious sense of what they mean. Okay, okay. That's, I think I understand that. So, so, so that's, a, that's a powerful counter-argument um, against the idea that we're living in a simulation. 
Uh, now, from a faith perspective, I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say, from a faith perspective, this is this would be bunk. <laughs> OK, <laughs> So, but but am I right? Why would you say that? Well, if that. Um, that if we're persons made in the image mm-hmm. and likeness of God, that mm-hmm. God will that that mitigates us against being a simulation because image and likeness is not the same thing as a simulation. Maybe. Now, now well, I'm now I'm unsure as I say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, because because our image, if we're made in the image and likeness of God, doesn't that sound like we're a simulation of God in some sense? That does. That kind of, okay, I'm going to need you to guide me through we're, this. We're, we're simulating some aspects of God. <laughs> yes. Let's see, this is yeah. folks. This is why Jimmy is. It's Jimmy Aka's mysterious world, not Don's mysterious world, because Jimmy's going to help me uh, to uh, reason through this from a faith perspective. So why don't I let you do that? Well, I would say that, um, and I'm personally, I'm skeptical of the simulation hypothesis. I think that the arguments that just from the reason perspective make it quite unlikely that we would be living in a simulation. But, you know, people still wonder, well, let's suppose it was true. Would that make a difference from a faith perspective? Mm. And I don't think it would. I don't I, I don't think it would uh, make a fundamental difference in, in things. So um, let's let's think from a faith perspective and let's just give the simulation hypothesis their preferred theory that the world as we experience it is a simulation. Um, What would that mean for us as people of faith? Well, there are three key elements that the faith tells us about. Um, One of them is God himself. Another is the world that God has created. And another is our individual souls. And so uh, if we're experiencing a simulation. What does that mean for those three things? God, the world, and the soul. Um, well, God's existence is proved by philosophical arguments. So God's existence would not be challenged even if we are living in a computer simulation. There would still be a God who was needed to create the base level of reality in which resides the massive server farm that is housing our simulation. So God's existence is totally unaffected by the simulation hypothesis. Um, What about the world? Well, um, the world, if we're in a simulation, is still real in a couple of different senses. There's the the base level reality that's real, that, you know, the one that contains the big server farm running the simulation. Uh, So that level of reality is real and God created it. Uh, what about the world that we experience, the one that is a simulation? Well, um, we have always had a question about what's the nature of the world we find ourselves in. In, um, in classical physics, it was thought that the world we experience is made up of four or five elements, you know, uh, air, earth, fire, water, and sometimes quintessence. Um, then more recently in modern physics, it was proposed that, uh, actually the world that we experience is made up of atoms and that became atomic theory. And eventually that was refined so that we now understand subatomic particles down to the, uh, you know, quark and, um, and lepton level. Um, maybe there's a deeper kind of particle strings or something like that, even further down. Um, but you know, it's just, we still experience the world either way, whether you're explaining it by, 
um, by the classical four elements or by the modern 118 or the 17 subatomic particles that are part of the standard model now. Um, what does it matter if you then say, well, okay, the world as we're experiencing it is real. We are experiencing it. It's just made out of patterns of information. In fact, some uh, some people uh, who favor atomic theory will say maybe it turns out fundamental particles are just information on some in, in some way. Um, information is very important to quantum physics, and so maybe there's a kind of blending on a certain level between the idea that the world as we experience it is made of patterns of information whether you conceive of them as as you know the kind of subatomic particles that we're used to talking about or as patterns of information existing in a computer medium so it doesn't to me seem to matter how you explain the nat- from a faith perspective it obviously matters from a scientific perspective but from a faith perspective it doesn't matter which material you propose the world we live in to be made out of whether it's the four classical elements the modern understanding of subatomic particles or patterns of information or something else. This world is still real. We still experience it. And it ultimately is a part of God's creation. So, um, so that, that wouldn't bother me from a faith perspective when it comes to the soul. um, Well, we've already mentioned the hard problem of consciousness. There seems to be no, we, we just do not have uh, even the beginnings of a scientific explanation for what consciousness is and why it exists, that suggests it's something that is separate from the, uh, at least in some way, separate or distinct from the physical world in which we find ourselves. And that gives us reason to believe in the soul. Now, if the simulation hypothesis were true, that would then mean that our souls are tied to and interacting with patterns of information instead of tied to and interacting with subatomic particles. But so what? There's still Our souls still exist. They're still interacting with another medium that's the basis of physical reality, and the essentials of the faith are preserved. Now, you might say, well, it seems implausible that our souls are interacting with patterns of information in this way. Uh, and if so, that gives you a reason to doubt the simulation hypothesis. On the other hand, I'm not sure why it would be particularly more difficult to think of souls interacting with patterns of information than souls interacting with subatomic particles. But uh, either way, the essence of the faith is preserved. So I don't, I don't think that the fundamentals of the faith would really be affected if the simulation hypothesis were true. So according to this theory, we are, you know, even if we are simulations, we're still true persons. Uh, mm-hmm. With the with the you know an eternal immortal soul, uh, an eternal immortal fate of one one sort or another, um, you know, and an existence goes beyond it. So someone might say, well, if we're created by a programmer in a computer, um, how does that make us? You know, does that make the programmer God instead of the real God? Um, no. Okay. Um, that that the programmer in that case would just be an intermediate step. It would be a, a, a form of secondary causation. This is something you can read about in the Catechism, where it talks about how God uses secondary causes to achieve His ends. 
And so we've already seen an example of a conceptual hurdle like this with biological evolution. So the way the Bible presents it in Genesis, it gives us the fundamental theological truth, God made the world and God made us. And he made us in part from the materials that are in the world. You know, he used the dust of the earth to make Adam's body and so forth. And so these represent theological truths. God really did all this stuff, but it doesn't tell us how God did all this stuff. Um, That's something that uh, we have a clearer picture of as a result of modern science. It looks like there were intermediate steps that Genesis doesn't mention because the author didn't know about them. Mm-hmm. Um, where you had intermediate biological forms leading up to the bodies of the first humans. And in the same way, if you said, okay, there's a computer programmer who built a big server farm and designed the software, that doesn't make the programmer God. It just means God used the programmer and the server farm as intermediate steps in producing us the same way he used intermediate biological life forms to produce us. The fundamental truth, we are God's creation, still remains solid. This would just fill in additional details about uh, how God did it. Now, you may say, well, I don't find this at all plausible. Well, fine. I don't believe in the simulation hypothesis anyway. I'm just saying (laughs) if it were true, it wouldn't affect the substance of the faith the programmer would just be another intermediate cause that God used, just like he used, apparently, um, intermediate biological forms in the chain of causes leading to mankind. And perhaps there might be some analogy related to how a uh, a husband and wife make uh, a child, co-creating a child with God. Uh, When a child Mm -hmm. is born, they are the creation both of their parents, but also of God. so, hmm. yeah, bear some thinking about maybe some philosophers. Parents, up- parents are intermediate yeah. causes, but but God is still responsible for the child, and in particular for the child's soul. Okay, wow, very my my mind expands every time we have these we 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 have uh, these discussions, Jimmy. So my my mind is expanding <laughs> even as we think or as we talk about this. Oh, even as we think that there was a little Freudian slip. But anyway, yeah, we are uh, thinking any other any other things we need to talk about under the faith perspective. One thing that I think is interesting, because you referred to the fact that, you know, we have these immortal souls and thus we have an eternal destiny. And one wonders. So first, I got to tell a joke. This is a joke from years ago. Um, so Bill Gates dies and 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 goes to the pearly gates and St. Peter shows him what it's going to be like in heaven and uh, gives him a choice of whether he wants to go there. And so he shows him this, you know, all this realms of glory and light and joy and happiness and all this stuff. And Bill Gates says, yes, I definitely want to go there. So St. Peter pushes the button. Instantly, Bill Gates is surrounded in fiery lava. And he says, what happened? And St. Peter says, sorry, Bill, that was just the demo. (laughs) (laughs) And for anybody who's had a disappointing experience with computer technology once you actually install it um, <laughs> yes. that uh, has some relevance and seem to in this situation since we're talking about simulated eternal destinies yes um, but let's pose the question seriously so the faith teaches us that there is a heaven and hell and that we will one day be living in a new heaven united or in a new earth united to a new heaven that new earth 
could be a renovated version of this one, or it could be a an entirely new creation. That's something that is a theologically open question. Um, if we bring the simulation hypothesis into it, the question would then be, would God simply renovate the current simulation and upgrade it? or And still leave our souls interacting with it? Would that be the new heaven and the new earth? Um, or would God uh, end up having our souls attached to an entirely new and better simulation? Or would he attach our souls to a base-level reality at that point that's not a simulation? Um, it seems to me that, uh, that you know, and obviously I have inclinations. I think we're living in a base-level reality anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to be in a base-level reality in the new heaven and the new earth. But from a faith perspective, if the simulation hypothesis were true— then um, any of those would be possibilities, and we'd ultimately have to leave the nature of the new earth in God's hands, which is where it's always been. <laughs> of course. You know, it's a, it comes to mind that, that, that this is not unrelated from the uh, multiverse quantum theory of existence, where there are an infinite number of I nearly identical universes um, with, without, you know, uh, simulating or in, in, in if we want to use the same terminology um every possible decision point um mm -hmm. and and that sort of thing and that's this is not unrelated to that is it, it there are points of similarity yeah. and we will be talking more about the multiverse in an upcoming episode probably awesome. several <laughs> yes mm -hmm. um uh, yeah uh, i was going to make a multiverse joke but but no point there so <laughs> just imagine the multiverse joke that i made in some other multiverse um, yeah. So the bottom line uh, here on whether we're living in a simulation is is what, Jim? Well, the, speaking from a reason perspective, the simulation hypothesis is very far from being proved. And one is quite within one's um, <clears throat> epistemic rights to say that I don't I don't think we are in a simulation. But even if it were true, it ultimately wouldn't matter from a faith perspective. And it also doesn't matter from a practical perspective. We still regardless of the nature of the world we're living in, we still need to live life. We still need to get on with life. And uh, you may notice that Elon Musk, who thinks we are in a simulation, is doing exactly that. He's getting on with his life. He's investing in new projects. He's hoping to go to Mars. He's hoping to do all kinds of things, even though he thinks it's all a simulation. Ultimately, it doesn't matter from a practical perspective. We still need to get on with life. Excellent. So if uh, if folks want to learn more about uh, these this topic, uh, what what further resources do we have for them this week? Uh, have I have an article that I wrote about this on my blog. And so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's called Would It Matter If We're Living in a Simulation? Also have a link to the simulation hypothesis article in Wikipedia and an article uh, linking to what Elon Musk and some other folks have said about the simulation hypothesis. Excellent. Great. So go, go check that out, folks. Uh, so now we'll move on to our mysterious feedback, where we uh, get feedback from the, from you, the listeners. And our first feedback is on the episode we did recently on uh, the Antichrist. Uh, that was episode number 11. And uh, Jason and the gang on YouTube, um, I'm not sure if it was actually a group of people writing this, but he says, uh, I'm scared of this evil figure of the Bible, and I bet he will be in Satanism, the leader of this religion of the devil. Uh, I can't hear you, Jimmy. 
Well, it's an interesting idea. Obviously, the Antichrist is uh, in league with the devil in Scripture, and he could be a conscious Satanist who consciously worships the devil. That's quite possible. I'm not sure that it's essential, though, because if you look in the book of Revelation, um, and you have the figure of the beast, and the beast is not actually called—this is something we talked about in our Antichrist episode—the beast of Revelation is not referred to as the Antichrist. Uh, it's possible that they're the same figure, it's, or that the beast is one manifestation of the Antichrist. But notice that the beast, and we'll be talking about this more in future episodes, is identified in a special way with the line of early Roman emperors, and in particular with the emperor Nero. Well, Nero, even though Satan was behind his activities, was not a conscious worshiper of Satan. Uh, Nero worshipped the Roman gods, as did the other Roman emperors. And so even though Satan was behind the activity of Nero and his persecution of Christians, that didn't mean that Nero consciously worshipped Satan. And in the same way, I would say it may be that the final Antichrist um, may be self-deceived and may not consciously worship Satan, even though he's doing Satan's bidding. Okay. Then uh, Tammy Kitchener, also on YouTube, uh, wrote, uh, I love this talk. I'd really like more talks on the book of Revelation. And we will be happy to provide those. Uh, <laughs> Revelation is one of my favorite books to study, and we will definitely be talking about it in future episodes. Plenty of mysteries to mine in the book of Revelation. And then Jason wrote on our Facebook page, uh, he says, I just wanted to tell you directly how much I'm enjoying Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. I share your interest in many of these topics, and I appreciate and admire your diligence, thoroughness, and fairness in how you tackle these questions. As you've always done in any number of formats, you've shown so much charity toward folks of different viewpoints while being fair to their arguments and respectfully but compellingly putting forward your own. Thank you for doing the podcast. And then he uh, finishes by saying, I signed up today to be a regular Patreon supporter. Thank you, Jason, very much. I, I, we Amen. greatly appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you also, Jason, for your kind words. Um, I, uh, it, I appreciate them very much because it shows that you understand, you get what I'm trying to do, which is explore interesting topics and interact with other viewpoints in a way that's charitable and that is evidence-based. And, um, and so I, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much, and thank you for your generosity on on Patreon, and I hope other people will uh, support us as well on Patreon. Just go to sqpn.com slash give. So, and that's our feedback for this week, and then we'll move on to mysterious headlines. Uh, what are the mysterious headlines this week, Jimmy? So the Times, <clears throat> the Times of Israel has an article on a 2,000-year-old ring that's been discovered that has the name Pilate on it, um, as in Pontius Pilate. This ring was found in, in Israel a number of decades ago, and they didn't even realize what it was until recently when they cleaned it mm. and discovered what the inscription said. Previously, it was, it, was, it was found in the Herodium, which was a fortress that uh, Herod the Great had built. And, um, and so uh, it's there's a plausible connection there, how the ring could have gotten into the Herodium. And, um, and it's probable 
that this ring was not itself owned by Pontius Pilate. It's a sealing ring. That is a ring that would you, you would use to impress wax seals or clay seals on documents as a mark of authentication. Um, and But it's made out of copper. And it's uh, we would think that Pilate's own sealing ring would be made out of a more noble metal, like, say, gold. So this was, they think, unless... Pilate had a spare copper ring that he wore ordinarily. Um, it's thought that this isn't Pilate's own ring. It may be, though, a ring that was owned by a middle-class person or or who was like maybe one of Pilate's freed slaves, because it was very common when slaves were emancipated for them to take the name of their former master as a sign of gratitude for freeing them. Mm. And so... Um, in fact, that was customary in Roman society. So um, Pilate might have had a slave that he emancipated and who then took the name Pilate. But J- Pilate was not a common name in Roman society. And to find this ring in Israel, of all places, in the Herodium with a first century date, strongly suggests that it's in some way linked to the biblical Pilate. And that makes it only the second uh, ancient inscription we found that refers to Pontius Pilate. The first was a, um, a, a, a step that had an inscription mentioning Pilate that we found in Caesarea Maritima in Israel. And so this would be a second ancient inscription mentioning Pilate. Well, that's the, one of the interesting things about Pilate is, you know, he's in the Bible, the most well-known book in the world, frankly. And so we kind of assume he must be some major, you know, just a, a key figure in history. But in fact, there is not a whole lot of archaeological evidence about Pilate, right. <laughs> apart from yeah. these two. In in secular history, he's mentioned, but, but not a lot, and there's not a lot of archaeological evidence. Incidentally, I'll mention one thing that I think is credible about this ring. Um, I am, because of the number of frauds that have appeared on the antiquities market recently, I am reflectively skeptical of any major intriguing find like this. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I think it's plausible because they didn't they've had this ring for decades. We know it was unearthed by an archaeologist. It didn't just mysteriously appear on the antiquities market. We know who dug it up. We know when it was dug up. We know where it was dug up. And they didn't even realize its significance for decades. Right. They've had it all this time and it was only when they cleaned it they found out what it was. So to me that says this is this sounds authentic. That's cool. Excellent. So uh, another headline? Do we have uh, another one? Yeah. Um, the, the military culture website, We Are the Mighty, has an interesting story that relates to one of our previous programs. We did a program on Area 51, and I believe I mentioned in Area 51 uh, an account that I first read in Annie Jacobson's book on Area 51 um, about early jet fighters during World War II. The first jet fighters were top here in America were top secret. And so they were flying them out in the desert um, in California. And to keep the secret, the um, when they were taxiing the, the jet onto the runway, they would put a fake wooden propeller on it because that's one of the things that jets don't have propellers. Mm-hmm. And, and so they would put a fake wooden propeller on it as they would taxi it out. So anyone seeing the plane taxiing out would think it's some kind of ordinary plane. It's not a revolutionary new technology. And then they would take the propeller off 
and it would fly. But then you had the problem of what about pilots seeing it in the sky? How do you keep the secret there when it doesn't have the propeller on? And one guy, his name, it turns out, is Jack Woolhams, decided, I'm going to put on a gorilla suit and a derby hat (laughs) while I'm flying the plane. So anybody who comes back and sees the plane and says, I was up in the sky, I, I saw this other plane, it had no propeller and it was being flown by a gorilla in a derby hat. Would sound nuts, and in, <laughs> and in and and that's exactly what happened. And in fact, they had military psychiatrists talking to these these guys, convinced them that they were hallucinating. That up at altitude, when the oxygen is low, you can hallucinate things like this. And that's part of how they kept the secret. So I'd heard that story. I hadn't known the name Jack Woolhams, um, but We Are the Mighty has an article on the subject with a picture of Jack. And so, uh, if you want to check that out. Uh, see the show notes. The article is called Test Pilot of First USAF Jet Fighter Dressed as a Gorilla to Mess with Other Pilots. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, the, 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 the early days of the, of the US Air Force, uh, the, the culture then uh, is a bit crazy. Uh, Wild West. Excellent. So uh, that's, that's it for our headlines, and that's it for our uh, podcast this, this week. Um, what did we, So we put it out to you folks. Uh, what did you think of uh, our discussion on uh, whether we're living in a simulation and whether it even matters if we are? Uh, let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or uh, the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Find the link to this episode and leave some feedback there. Or you can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. You can find uh, the relevant links including the the further resources we talked about from this discussion uh, on uh, and the links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes on sqpn.com until next time jimmy aiken thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world thank you dom and once again i'm dom bettinelli thank you for listening to jimmy aiken's mysterious world on starquest This is Don Bettinelli again. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll help us keep producing the podcasts you love. Thank you for your generosity. To make your pledge and find out about the free thank you gifts we'd like to send you, visit sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give.